You can turn in your Bibles to Mark 9. That's where we stopped last week. This section of Mark 9, from about verse 33 until the end of the chapter, has a lot of sayings from Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition, you'll notice how many words are in red coming up. They appear at first glance to be unrelated to each other, almost as if Mark is just relating a series of quotes from Jesus that he just sort of juxtaposed against each other. I don't think they're unrelated, and I'm going to attempt to show that to you this morning. I think they all have to do with the fact that Jesus has just explained to them in verse 31 He just told them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. So then they head for Capernaum and when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them saying, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. That's where we stopped last week. Jesus has just told them about his own impending death. They don't hear it. They don't get it. But their conversation among each other is, which of them is going to be the greatest? I believe everything Jesus says for the rest of the chapter is a response to the fact that they're discussing who's the greatest. Because if you look at the very end of the chapter, verse 50, the very last thing that Mark records Jesus saying is, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So I believe that that is the end of the pericope here. Those are like bookends. They are starting by asking who's going to be the greatest and discussing it among themselves. It ends with Jesus saying, be at peace with each other. Everything that's in between those two statements is all about the topic that they were discussing who was going to be the greatest among them. Now, I've said over and over again, and this should be kind of tattooed to your memory by now, that the most frequently mentioned sin throughout the Bible is the sin of pride. We have talked about pride and ego and the way that self-aggrandizement runs absolutely contrary, not only to Christianity, but to godliness in general. Because if God is absolutely right and holy and just and sovereign, and then we compare his grandness to you, what have you got to brag about? Well, then you don't have much at all. So then when it comes to the affairs of God, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the theology of God and the saving work of God, when it comes to that, how much should you brag about within yourself? Well, none, because again, you have no authority, no power, and he has all of it. And so God says things over and over again, like the fact that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Over and over again throughout the Bible, you see men raise themselves up and then God takes them down because you will be humble before a thrice holy God. And he's going to teach you that lesson one way or the other. 
you're either going to learn it the hard way or you're going to learn it through his scripture. He's going to say over and over again, do not regard yourself too highly, which is why Paul in Philippians 2 would say things like regard other men as better than yourself. So again, we keep seeing the consistent testimony throughout the Bible of regard yourself as being humble before God. Don't raise yourself up. Meanwhile, he asks them, what were you all discussing with each other? And it turns out that they were talking about who was going to be the greatest, which is why the very first thing he says to them in describing what greatness is, is that if you're really going to be great, if you really want to be first, then you're going to be last of all and servant to all. That, in Jesus' reckoning, is what greatness is. What does greatness look like in the heavenly economy? It looks like service. It looks like taking the back seat and then waiting to be asked to come up. Now, you all should be very happy about that because I think every week here at GCA, I look at these front seats and I ask you in the back to come. Well, anyway. (laughs) No, in, in the Jesus economy, in the Jesus mindset, in the Jesus theology and religion, in the Jesus worship, he is absolutely everything. And that leaves no room for you to start inserting yourself. That leaves no room for you to start saying, well, Jesus and me together We've got a good thing going. Him and I together, we got me saved. Him and I together, we can probably save some other people. Him and I together, we can do some great stuff for him. But Jesus said that there are going to be many who are going to say, Lord, Lord, haven't I? And they're going to start talking about what they did in his name. Haven't we done great works in your name? Haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't haven't I done all this for you? And his response is, depart from me, your works are iniquity, I never knew you. So again, the consistent testimony of anytime you want to raise yourself up, anytime you want to brag on you, anytime you want to boast about how great you're doing, then you're reacting the exact opposite way that the Bible says you would react if you really knew who God was, who Christ is, and who you are. You're misunderstanding the relationship if you think Christianity is about you, because it's not. It's about Christ. It's about his glory. It's about his worship. So they had been talking about who was going to be the greatest. Now, understand that after this discussion he's about to have with them, in which he's not only going to correct their thinking and teach them that genuine greatness looks like service, But he's also going to bring up hell. I mean, he's going to get real serious about this thing. Only 12 times in the entire New Testament do you find the word Gehenna used. Once in the book of James, 11 times by Jesus. He's real serious about this hell thing, this Gehenna thing. We're going to talk about what that means. And why he uses that comparison to inspire them. But he's going to get so serious about this that you would think any normal person who had some modicum of understanding after this discussion he's going to have with them, you would think that they would put a a lid on that discussion. 
But no, in a couple chapters, John and James are going to come to him and say, in your kingdom, can we have the seat on your right and left? Can we be more important than the other ten? Can we be right up there and have the chief seats with you? He's going to say, that's not mine to give. So I just want you to see how wrapped up in their flesh they are continually. When he tells them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be handed over and die, they don't get it. Peter even rebukes him for saying that. And Jesus calls him Satan to his face. Because he says, you don't cherish the things of God. You care about these fleshly things, these earthly things. But you don't care that the scripture has already predicted that this is the way that the Son of Man has to go. I have to die. I have to take the sins of my people. I have to rise again after three days. He keeps telling them this and they don't get it. And so stuck in their flesh are they that they continue to argue about things like who's going to be more important. Should we apply that for a moment? Sure. One person thinks we should. <laughs> yeah, because uh, how many of you grew up in the church where uh, there was some amount of politicking about who was the important one? Yep. I certainly did. I was raised in a church out in California where it was plainly obvious that when the pastor died, the church was going to fold. He couldn't imagine a successor to himself because he was just so important. Am I telling the truth? Okay. Yeah, he became the important one instead of Christ being the important one. To do the job of evangelizing, to do the job of teaching, to do the job of pastoring any amount of people, you have to be prepared to get out of the way and introduce them to the one who can actually do them some good. But far too often, preachers insert themselves into that relationship. And when you do that, you end up with a pope <laughs> and cardinals and all kinds of politicking to talk about who the important one is. And then they make the important one rich and they raise him up and they give him the best lights and the best sound. And it all of a sudden becomes all about him. But it's not. It's never been. Because he is going to preach for, what, 30, 40 years tops? And then he's going to die. And then Christianity is going to continue. And Jesus is going to continue building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus will do the work regardless of all the human beings who have come and gone through the ages. So clearly, obviously, the people who are preaching the gospel are not the important ones. It's the person they are preaching who is important. Christ is the very center, as I keep saying, of the religious universe. Therefore, he is the one that we're supposed to be taking people to. He's the altogether lovely one who we are introducing people to because he can actually save their souls. Human beings just can't do that. So then, who's the important one? They're discussing among themselves which of them is the important one. He's among them saying, I'm about to die. My death is going to ransom all my people, pay their sin debt, satisfy all the thousands of years of prophecies, and then I'm going to rise again. I'm not even going to stay dead. How important am I? They don't even get it. He talks about himself. They don't get it. 
They're blind to it. But they're ready to talk about which of them is most important. Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because I think the whole rest of the chapter all has to do with that. Because they are going to tell him, hey, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name. But because he doesn't follow us, we told him to stop it. Okay, what's their thinking? What are they imagining? They're saying, we're the important ones. We're with you. We're the 12. We're the, we're the ones who walk and talk right with the Messiah every day. So we're the important ones. And if somebody else is casting out demons in your name, they shouldn't do that because, well, they're not following us. And we're clearly the important ones. Jesus is going to shut them down and say, if they're not against me, they're for me. And he's going to say, look, if somebody's casting out demons, doing miracles in my name, then they're not going to turn around immediately and say bad stuff about me. Because if they can, in my name, take authority over demons, what's the likelihood that the next thing out of their mouth is going to be some kind of insult to me? They've already demonstrated the power and the authority that I have So they're going to say good stuff about me. So they're for me. Don't stop them. But what I want you to see is that they, in their pride, in their sense of we're the important ones, not you, they were trying to stop people who were actually participating in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And they wanted to stop them strictly because of their ego. Should I make a brief application of that? Because I've grown up in the church and I have seen far too many preachers call out or call down other preachers because they just don't follow them. I've had that happen to me where preachers have, well, not preachers, a preacher said to me once that the only way we were ever going to be reconciled was if I came back and put myself under his authority. That's the only way we're ever going to be friends again. Okay, there's that thing I'm talking about, that sense of, well, if you're not with me, then you're no good. Well, that's the same way the disciples were thinking. That kind of thinking still has a tendency to percolate in the church and come up every once in a while, and that should never be. We ought to be able to join around our unity around Christ, the very thing that Kellen was saying this morning, that we are gathered around Christ He's the unifying factor. Does that make sense? So here's what happens. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So sitting down, he called the twelve And he said to them, notice, by the way, they didn't tell him what they were talking about. He knew what they were talking about. He didn't ask them the question to gain information. He asked them so that they would have to admit that that's what they were talking about. And then he says to them, if anyone wants to be first, that word first right there is primary. It's not like walking first in line. Whichever one wants to be the 
first of all, the same way that Jesus is referred to as the firstborn, the preeminent of God, the one who has first place. If anyone wants to have first place and be preeminent, then he shall be last of all and servant of all. So to give them an example, verse 36 says, and taking a child, he set the child before him and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but receives the God that sent me. Okay, so you're an adult, you're grown up, you're important. And that's certainly the way that it would have been 2,000 years ago in a Middle Eastern culture. They would have thought, okay, children, they're diminutive, not only in status, but in importance. But we're grown-up men. We know some stuff. We're getting our theology together. We're with Jesus. We're important. They would have thought of the child as problematic, in the way, not worth their effort. Jesus says, receive the child. But then why? In my name. And anyone who receives a child in my name receives me. Because you're doing it for my sake. You're doing it because I'm the unifying factor. You're doing it because out of love for me and out of grace, which is flowing through me, then you are being kind and gracious to the small ones. In a minute, he's going to make the same reference to small ones, diminutive ones, and he seems to be talking about those that are young in faith, those that are just coming to Christ. And he's going to say, if you get in the way of one of those diminutive ones that's coming to me, it'd be better if you were drowned than to do that. Not just drown. It would be better if a large millstone was tied around your neck and you were cast into the deepest sea if you would get in the way of one of these little ones that's coming to me. Okay, now how does that apply Well, they just said, hey, there's these guys who are casting out demons in your name. But they're not with us. And because they're not with us, you know, they don't know what we know. They're not important like we are. And then Jesus says, if you get in the way of one small one coming to me, that goes bad for you. That goes really, really bad. That goes to Gehenna. That goes to a fire that's never quenched and a worm that's that's never sleeping. That's how bad it goes for you if you get in the way of anyone who's coming to me. You see how this all applies, how this all fits? So taking a child, he set the child before him and taking him in his arms. Someday, I hope, when I'm in eternity, I want to meet that kid who then had a life and grew up and did his thing And always knew that at some point Jesus held him in his arms. I want to know that guy. Jesus said, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me alone, but him who sent me. So John said to the teacher, notice it's John. This is the same John who, with his brother James, is going to ask Jesus if he can have the chief seat. 
This is the same John who, I don't think it is coincidental, just happened to be the one sitting next to Jesus leaning on his breast at the Last Supper. I mean, he wants to be at the right or left side, right around Jesus all the time, sees himself as the important one. This is the same John who at this point Jesus called son of thunder with his brother because they went around wanting to call lightning down from the sky so that they could burn people up. That's the John we're talking about here. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection, he ends up writing more about love than any of the other apostles. He goes from John the Burnham, John the send them away and don't let them be anything like us because they're not following us and we're the important one. He goes from there to being the apostle of love because something happened to him. Something changed in him. Once Christ resurrected, the Holy Spirit came and inhabited him and he changed. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. So apparently, he was successful at it. He saw someone casting out demons. So he was successfully doing it, and he was doing it in the name of Christ, successfully using the power and the authority of Christ to drive out demons. That's a good thing. But John says... We stopped him. Don't worry about Jesus. We got that. We went to him. We stopped him. Why? Because he's not following us. He's not with us. So we put a stop to that. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Do you remember when Paul writes from prison saying that there were some that were preaching Christ and some were preaching him out of sincerity, but some were preaching him hoping to add to his bonds. And you remember what Paul's response was? Either way, I thank my God that Christ is preached. Regardless of what the motivation was, the reputation, the name of Christ is being advanced. And as long as that's happening, Paul said, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter if it adds to my bondage, if it adds to the pain of my incarceration. I don't care. Christ is being preached. That's the key thing. That's the primary thing. So here Jesus says, look, if they've just done a miracle in my name, they're not going to turn around and talk bad about me. And if they're not talking bad about me, they're talking good about me. And in fact, if they're casting out demons in my name and people see that, who are they going to end up realizing has all the authority and the power? Well, Christ himself. Now, thinking about this exchange in the larger picture, do you remember what happened just before this? We talked about it last week, that the that Jesus came to the disciples. They were engaged in a conversation with a crowd. And Jesus said, what are you discussing? And they said, well, actually, the father said, I brought my son who has a demon. I brought him to your apostles. And I asked them to help cast the demon out. And they couldn't do it. But apparently, they found a guy who was doing it. Apparently, there was a guy who was casting out demons. 
I think their nose is a little out of joint. Like, wait a minute, last time we were with Jesus, we couldn't cast out a demon. And then he did it and called us faithless. Now, this guy is successfully casting out demons. Don't worry, we told him off. We told him to stop it. We told him to quit it. Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't hinder him. Because if he's not against me, he's for me. And being for Jesus is the key to the whole thing. Advancing the reputation of Jesus, casting out demons, doing miracles by the name of Jesus, well, that's all a positive thing and all a good thing. And Jesus wanted his reputation to go forward. So he said, don't stop him. If he's not against us, he's for us. That's verse 40. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink. Okay, now we're not even talking about miracles. Now we're not even talking about casting out demons. It's just a hot day and you're thirsty. And somebody gives you a cup of water. If someone gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. So if someone finds out that you are an apostle of Christ, a follower of Christ, and for that reason they give you a cup of water, look how far Jesus takes it. This again is under the heading of, if they're not against me, they're for me. If they give you a cup of water because you're with me, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward for a cup of water. He will not lose his reward. Now, what reward is he talking about? Is he talking about heavenly reward? Is he talking about kingdom rewards? Is he talk- I don't know. All I know is Jesus is making the point that if they're not against me, they're for me. And when his disciples tried to call out somebody who wasn't with them, wasn't doing it their way, wasn't following them, Jesus got in their way and said, you're wrong, not them. You're wrong for stopping somebody who's for me. You get it? Anybody want to apply that to Facebook? Okay, I'll just let that one go. Jesus says to his own apostles that if they're not against me, they're for me, don't stop them. And then says, even if somebody gives you a cup of water because you're with me, he's not going to lose his reward. But now he's going to go the direct opposite of that. Now that he has said, this is a positive thing. Those guys that are casting out demons in my name, they don't even have to go to that extent. If they just gave you a cup of water, they've done something that advances my cause. Because as soon as they hear that you are with me, then they give you a cup of water. That means they love me, they respect me. If that's the case, they're not going to lose their reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones, now that word right there can mean small in stature, like a child. It can mean small in social stature. It can mean small in importance. It can mean small in reputation. Slaves were often referred to by this word. 
that they had nothing, they were just small, they weren't important people. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, okay, what does that mean? Okay, they believe, they're coming to Christ. They're understanding the things of Christ, they're following after Christ, they're coming to Christ, and then you get in the way, and you cause them to doubt? Okay, what's this in the context of? Hey, Jesus, we saw these guys who were casting out demons in your name, apparently successfully, and we told them to stop it. Okay, Jesus says, those who are casting out demons in my name believe in my name. That's why they're doing it. And they're seeing the authority of my name because the demons are leaving. And then while they're having that success where they're for me, where they wouldn't be able to say anything against me, they're so for me, you stood in the way and caused them to stumble. You walked up and said, quit it. Stop it. You're not with us. Don't do that. Jesus reprimands them and says, you know what that's worth? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, notice, by the way, the word is not even fall, not even disbelieve. The word is stumble. You put a stumbling block in front of them. You trip them. If you cause someone on their advancement in faith to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. That'd be better than what's going to happen to you if you cause these who are coming to me to stumble. That's harsh. Now, by the way, I don't have the graphic that Roger Skeppel had in Texas a couple of months ago. But at this point, as he was reading this particular text, he threw a picture up on the screen of what a millstone is. This is not a small millstone like a woman would use to grind out grain. He took the time to say a heavy millstone, which was this big, enormous wheel of rock, which was pulled in a continuous circle by a donkey because a man couldn't budge it. And so a donkey walking in a circle would drag this huge stone against another stone to grind out the mill, to grind out the grain, to make breads and things. Jesus said, now, now by the way, if they put a small stone around your neck, just, let's say, just a boulder. <laughs> if they just put a couple of bricks around your neck and throw you into the deepest part of the sea, you're dead either way. You're, you're just as dead. But Jesus went for the huge rock. He knew that they would all know what the big millstone was. And he said, it would be better for you to have a big millstone tied around your neck. By the way, a typical millstone pulled by a donkey is about twice the size of a human being. Okay, so how fast are you going to the bottom of the sea? You're plunging to the bottom of the sea. And he says, that would be better for you then what's going to happen if you enter into judgment? Now, the next verse 
43 and then into 44, 45 into 46, 47 into 48, Jesus is going to describe where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Does anybody have an ESV here? I do. You do? Does your ESV have verse 46 and verse 44? It's gone. It's gone. It's not there. It's not there. The reason it's not there is because in some of the earliest manuscripts, those phrases are not there. The phrase does exist, and it does exist. In fact, if you look at your ESV, you'll see it in 48, correct? Yes. Yeah, because in the earliest manuscripts, the phrase does exist in verse 48. But apparently an early copyist was so taken either with the phrase or because of the repetitiveness of what Christ has said that he inserted the phrase, where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched, inserted it in what we call verse 46 and verse 44. But if I'm being honest with you, I have to tell you that the earliest manuscripts don't include it there. They do include the phrase. It's a perfectly biblical phrase, and Jesus did say it, but we don't know that he said it every time he mentioned hell. But he mentioned Gehenna. Okay, let's talk about Gehenna. That Greek word actually is a derivation of the Hebrew Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And you can read about the Valley of Hinnom in Jeremiah. You can read about it in 2 Kings. And what it was was the Valley of Hinnom lay just below Jerusalem. And that was the place where they had constructed a statue of Molech. And they would bring their children to pass through the fire of Molech. The very thing that God told them, don't do. Do not make your children pass through the fire while they were doing that. It really reached its zenith under King Ahaz, who actually had his own sons put through the fires of Molech. Thanks, Dad. During the time of Josiah, the king, not Josiah Franzone, But during the time of Josiah the king, during his sort of reformation of Israel, he decided to make the Valley of Hinnom a place that people would no longer want to go. And so he made it a refuse dump. In other words, you've got Jerusalem, the walled city, and you've got all these people living in it, and all these people eat regularly which means all these people create stuff regularly. Okay, so where are you going to put the stuff? What are you going to do with it? Well, every city would have a designated area, a dump, where they would put all that stuff. Well, King Josiah decided that it was going to be the Valley of Hinnom. The Greek phrase for Valley of Hinnom is gay or valley, the Gehenna. So everybody in Jerusalem knew where Gehenna was and what Gehenna was. Gehenna was a refuse dump where because of the amount of methane gas, the fire burned continually in order to keep the stench down. And because of all the refuse decaying there, it was full of maggots. Okay, so Jesus picked that up 11 different times and said, you think that's bad? 
Well, okay, he used it to describe hell, the ultimate place of destruction for people who fell under the judgment of God. And he used the phrase, where the worm never sleeps, where the fire's never quenched. And when he refers to Gehenna as their ultimate resting place, where there's always worms and always fire, that was the most grotesque thing he could have said to describe the eternal state of people. Because anybody who ever went to Gehenna, you only wanted to go there just long enough to drop off the refuse and get out of there. But he described it as, you're going to go there forever. And not only is it going to smell horrible and sulfur-like, but it's going to burn eternally and the worms are going to feed on you. Because you're now equatable with the stuff that's dumped there. Okay, so this Gehenna word is really, really a brutal word, and Jesus yanks it out. That's why it said it's only used 12 times in the Bible, one time by James, and the other 11 times by Jesus, because he's trying to describe to these guys how bad it's going to go for them if they do one thing, cause somebody who's coming to me to stumble. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, now he personalizes it. Now you're not just causing someone else to stumble, but if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter eternal life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, zoe, eternal life, lame, than having your two feet and be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Okay, what is Jesus saying? We have to now kind of look at church history in order to understand this. The disciples, nor any of the earliest church fathers who were taught by the disciples, ever preached a gospel that included self-mutilation. You understand what I'm saying? None of them went on to preach that Jesus says, cut off your hand literally. Cut off your foot, literally. Pluck out your eye, literally. Or the early church would have been handless, footless, blind people. And so what is he saying? What is he getting at? Is he just speaking in hyperbole? Or is he trying to show the seriousness of the crime they're committing in stopping believers from coming to him? And then he says, and if your own hand, foot, or eye keeps you 
from coming to me, stop it immediately. Here's the way I think it's supposed to be applied. What is your hand? What does your hand do for you? What's the point of having a hand other than scratching your head? Yes? To raise your hand. You raised your hand to show that your hand was to raise your hand. Well done you. To grab and lift. For doing stuff. Yeah, for grabbing things. Your work. That's your hand. What does your foot do for you? Takes you where you're going to go. It takes you around. So what you do, where you go, what does your eye do for you? Think how often Jesus said things like, keep your eye single, because your eye is the way that the light enters into a man. And think about what is the very essence of sin, according to John. He said it is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. So what's your eye supposed to do? Your eye is supposed to remain single and look on those things that are edifying and good for you. In other words, watch where you go, watch what you do, watch what you look at. The vast majority of lust that you're going to have in your life, the greatest amount of coveting that you're going to do in your life starts with what you see. You'll be driving down the road one day, perfectly happy with your life, perfectly content. I got everything I need. I'm good. Wait, I didn't know that existed. You see something go by on a billboard or a car goes by and you look at it and you go, I, I want that. All of a sudden, the desire and the coveting starts rising up in you because you saw it. That's how it starts. So if Jesus is not saying literally cut off your hand, cut off your foot, and blind yourself, then I do believe that he is saying, be careful what you do, be careful where you go, and be careful what you look at. Because if any of those things get in the way of your coming to me so that you stumble over the things of this world or the pride of life or the pride of your flesh, or your desires and your covetousness, if any of those get in the way, stop that. Stop that immediately. Do it as radically as if you just cut your hand off. Does that make sense? Yes. If you take those three categories, be careful what you do with your hand, where you go with your feet, and what you look at with your eyes... That kind of covers it. There's not a lot more for you to get in trouble with. You've got to be careful about what you allow yourself to see, to think, to do, and where you take yourself. I had a conversation several years ago with a man who was an alcoholic. And I said to him, you know where the problem is. The problem for you is in the bar. Every day after work, you go in the bar. You know where the problem is. Just don't go there. Don't let your feet take you there. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, cut your foot off. Just don't go there. You get the picture? Okay. In each of those cases, 
Jesus takes the time to say there's a contrast between life and entering into life having cut off some part, a foot, a hand, plucked out an eye, but it's better to go to eternal life than to spend eternity in hell because he describes hell in such a horrible way. So this is really, in the end, not about self-mutilation. It's about where are you going to spend eternity and how serious are you about it? How serious are you about the fact that you desire Christ, you desire salvation, you desire eternal life, you desire heaven, but you're willing to play around the edges of hell down here on earth? How serious are you? You need to just cut that off. Just cut that off. I can't tell you how many people have called me and said, I'd like to stop it, but I just can't. I just can't. Have you ever heard that one? I, I, I know I should. I know I'm doing it and I should stop it, but gee, I can't. Usually what they mean when they say I can't, what they mean is I like it too much. I like it so much, I don't want to let go of it. And so they cling to the things that are going to be the cause of their downfall because it appeals to their flesh. So the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other. And the spirit knows you shouldn't be like that, shouldn't go there, shouldn't look at that, shouldn't do that, but your flesh wants it really, really bad. Who's going to win? Jesus' answer is cut it off. Stop it. Because if you need inspiration... Hell's bad. Hell's so bad, and it's for so long, you don't want to play around the edges of it. You get the picture? Mm-hmm. All of that is in response to the fact that they were arguing about who's going to be the great one. Which one of us is going to be the great one? He said, be careful about stopping other people from coming to me. So much so, even be careful about stopping yourself from coming to me. And if anything would stop you or cause you to stumble or keep you from coming to me wholly and completely, cut it off. All right. Did you have your hand up, Sandy, or were you drying your nails? I didn't know which you were. They're dry. Okay, they're good. So I saw a hand go up, and I didn't know if you were offering to cut it off. So, um say something about that. Um, but one thing that's confusing me that you talked about, um, remember what I said, that they come to him and say, Lord, do this in your name, do that in your name. He said, this talk to me, I never knew you. Well, what we just read here, he was telling them to not stop them. So I can't connect the dots with those two. No problem. I think I can clear it up for you. It's one thing to say, in the name of Christ, which means in the authority of Christ. Uh, The example that I use all the time is you're at home one afternoon. Somebody knocks at the door and says, let me in. You say, no, it's my house. I don't have to let you in. I don't have to open the door. They say, open up in the name of the law. Well, suddenly now the person on your porch is a duly deputized representative of the law of the land. And suddenly you're required now to respond to them. If it was just a person, no big deal. 
But if they say open up in the name of, what they're saying is in the authority of the law. Jesus says the same thing. When he says in the name of, he means under the authority of, which is why they could drive out demons in the name of Jesus. They mean by the authority of Jesus, who has the greatest name, a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. That's all at the authority of Christ. Okay, so the people who were being shut down by the disciples were actually driving out the demons in the name of Christ, so they were using his authority completely to accomplish it. The ones that he said, depart from me, I never knew you, were busy bragging about themselves. Didn't I do this? Didn't I? Haven't I cast out demons? Didn't I do great works in your name? Didn't I? Didn't I? So if you go back and read the text, it's clear that Jesus is saying, you're making it about you when it's in fact all about me. And if you can make it about yourself in my presence, you don't know who I am. And I don't know you depart from me. Okay. That's good, though. It was a good point of clarification. Okay, so now we're at the end of chapter 9, and it says in verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. What's that mean, Micah? I was just reading that. I'm wondering yeah. what you were going to say. What's that mean, Josiah? What says? Leon, what's that mean? Conrad? Uh -oh. Todd, take a shot. Trials and judgments. Okay, you can read commentary after commentary after commentary, as I have. Nobody knows what it means. It's one of the most difficult to understand phrases in the entire New Testament. It might mean that Jesus might be talking about those that are going to be condemned. And so they're going to be salted. Now, salt, you have to know, in the New Testament is a preservative. That's the way that they could keep meat fresh for a day or two by heavily salting it. They also used to salt babies. Newborn babies were salted for the same purpose, for the same reason, to preserve them in their infancy. And so he could be saying... You're going to be sprinkled the way salt gets sprinkled on food and stuff. You're going to be sprinkled with fire, you that are going to be judged. Might mean that. He might mean it in the same way that Paul said, every man's works are going to be tried as by fire. And if you have wood, hay, stubble, it's going to burn up. If you have gold, silver, precious metals, it's going to be preserved. Maybe he means that. Maybe he means, for everyone will be salted with fire, that the trials of this life, like Todd was saying, that the trials of this life are going to create a preserving character in us. And so we're all going to have to go through the trials of this life for the purpose of having our faith renewed in us and built up in us. And that's what he means. The truth of the matter is, I've yet to read anybody who seemed to know definitively what that phrase means. And I'm not afraid to admit it. I can speculate on it just like all of you can speculate on it. The truth is I do not know definitively what it means. But Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. We don't know if he means everyone who goes into Gehenna. 
we don't know if he means everyone saved and unsaved without distinction we don't know what the relationship between salt and fire is but he said it this would have been an excellent place for one of the apostles to say what do you mean Jesus and then tell us but apparently they understood it because Mark wrote it down but he didn't tell us what it meant verse 50 might clarify it a little bit because he says salt is good that's true in that area of the Middle East they had abundant salt you had the Dead Sea do you know why the Dead Sea is dead nothing grows in salt and it doesn't have any outlets it just sits stagnant it sits still full of salt so no fish life can be in it nothing grows in it but along the shores there's an abundance of salt so they had plenty of salt which they used for a wide variety of things to preserve a wide variety of things so Jesus said salt is good but if the salt becomes unsalty with what will you make it salty again that's a great question yeah if the salt loses its saltiness then how are you going to make it salty again you can't there's no way no chemical way to resalt salt you'd have to put more salt on it so but once the salt loses its saltiness it's not good for anything you're just going to throw it out and this is a reference that Jesus has made a couple of times that we are to be the salt of the earth we're to be the preserving factor in the earth but he makes the point over and over if the salt doesn't stay salty in other words if the preservative doesn't retain that preserving quality how are you going to make it salty again so if the salt becomes unsalty with what will you make it salty again have salt in yourselves in other words have that preserving quality within yourselves he's saying this to the apostles the apostles that have been fighting about who's going to be the most important which one's the chief one among them he says have salt have preservative amongst yourselves but be at peace with one another don't compete with one another don't try to figure out who the chief one is among you have peace have the cessation of againstness within yourselves and retain that preserving quality that only salt has now what that has to do with salt and fire honestly your guess is as good as mine but the rest of the lesson on salt is valuable especially in light of the context that has to do with who's going to be the important one I can answer the question now I think the important one is who Jesus Jesus Christ how is it that only three of you answered that question <laughs> who's the important one then Jesus. yeah so then if he is the preeminently important one how important are you no you have no self-importance the only value you have is the value of the fact that God chose you put his spirit in you his son paid your debt that's the value but that value is all wrapped up in Christ again 
So he's the preeminent and important one. Therefore, we are told the same thing the apostles are told, which is to be at peace with each other. Don't fight with each other. Don't argue about who the important one is with each other. And importantly, don't stop someone who is a little one, a diminutive one, someone weak in faith. If they're weak in faith but coming to Christ, don't get in the way. Don't stop them. Encourage them by telling them how great Christ is. Encourage them by telling them that he is altogether lovely, that he is the cure for their disease, that he is a perfect and eternal savior. Speak well of Christ to the little ones and bring them along in Christ and then do the same thing for yourself. Make sure that that's the way you talk. That's the way you act. That's the places you go. That's the thing you look at. You fill your mind, you fill your heart, you fill your body with the things of Christ and you don't let the things of this world cause you to stumble as you're coming toward him. Any questions about that? Yes, sir. I can think of no better example of human pride than the Armenian point of view that with regard to salvation, God has to do his 50%, you have to do your 50%. Or the modest Armenians, God has to do his 90%, you do your 10%. Either way, you're, you're holding up those filthy rags so that everybody can see them. And I, I don't think there's any better example of human pride than that attitude. I agree. Because what are they essentially doing? They're inserting themselves into the relationship that is all Christocentric. It's all Christ from beginning, middle, end. It's all the perfect Savior doing his work perfectly, but they insert themselves somewhere. And in that case, they've inserted themselves in their own personal relationship. But then when they insert that theology into someone else's relationship, that's even worse because then they're causing those folks to stumble. So. And they're sharing the throne and making themselves Lord. Oh, yeah. They want to share that throne a little bit. So what are they doing? What the apostles were doing. Let's talk about who's important. <laughs> Apparently not just you, Jesus. We were arguing about which of us is the important one. Anything else? Any other questions? No, we're all good. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.